you energize us to love well, to love you, to have the very desire to sit here and listen to a sermon, that your spirit would work in our hearts, and that you would give us love and desire to go and share your good news with others. So God, I just pray for you to do that now in this moment, that you would lovingly break open our hearts to love even more. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I don't have any kind of nice, snazzy introduction this morning. We're just going to jump into Philippians chapter 2. So, uh, you have it hopefully already there. And if it feels like we're jumping into the middle of a conversation, it's because we are. And here it goes. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. Actually, before I read that, I need to say, I just love this guy over here. (laughs) He's awesome. (laughs) All right. Awkward moment over. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16 says this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So what's going on here? Well, Paul is writing to a Philippian church that he had planted in a city called Philippi in the province of Macedonia, and he's sitting in a prison cell. And he's writing this, and they are going through a little bit of anxiety because they're facing some struggles financially, as well as some outside threats and some inside threats. And this anxiety is leading to some backbiting, some distrusting. People are going back and forth. There's a poisonous spirit of self-seeking. And so he writes this letter to them. And practically the entire letter to the Philippians is about being in unity as a church. It starts out, you see it really clear in chapter 2 at the very beginning. He starts saying, I want you to be one-souled, one love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. He just layer upon layer upon layer of be together, church. And then it gets into the Christ hymn and uh, verse 8 and around about that area where he talks about how Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he embraced humility, came and was humiliated all the way to the point of death. It says he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then you see right before our passage in verses 9, 10, and 11 that the next thing you see is Jesus not humiliated but exalted and God getting grand glory as a result of Christ being humble, and he says, basically throughout the entire section, chapter 137 to chapter 218, be unified, be unified, be together, love one another, live as family. So now we have to ask the question as we come to verses 12 through 16, Paul, what's the deal? Why should we fearfully do faith together? Why should we fearfully do faith together? Why do you keep beating this drum? 
Why should we press with awe into salvation with one another? What's the point? Paul, I've heard it again and again and again. Why can't I be a Lone Ranger Christian? Why do I need to be one-souled and united in spirit? And we talk about this so often, Paul. Why should we fearfully do faith together? And verses 12 through 16 are going to answer that question. It's basically going to say, here is a fundamental reason. And what we're going to see in verses 12 to 13 is the first point. We should fearfully do faith together because God is causing it. We should fearfully do faith together because God is causing it. We should press with awe into salvation with one another because God is the one bringing it about. So let's look at this. In verse 12, he says, Therefore, pointing back to the fact that Jesus humbled himself to death, and in light of the fact that we should be living life together and loving life together, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, that same word, Christ obeyed to the point of death, as you guys have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence while I'm in prison, I'm not there anymore, but more so, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, that's a scary word. What does it mean to work out your salvation? We're all about the gospel, right? What, what does it mean to work out our salvation? This word translated work out, it's not translated that way anywhere else in the Bible. Way to go, ESV guys. Confuse us. It, it's usually translated do or practice your salvation. Or it's, it's translated bring about or produce. Well, that doesn't help us. Are we bringing about our salvation? Are we doing it and putting it into practice? Are we bringing it about and producing it? Well, in the book of Romans, it's the most saturated book in the Bible with this particular word. It appears 11 times. And Romans chapter 7 is the most saturated chapter in the entire Bible. Six out of the 11 instances in Romans of this word are all in chapter 7. And we don't have to look at every single instance. Sometimes it means to do, like, um, to, to do what I don't want to do. And sometimes it means to produce, like the wrath of God is produced as a result of sin. Romans 7.18 is the most, I think, enlightening use of this word to help us understand what's going on in Philippians 2. It says this, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. That word doing is the same exact word that's translated work out in our passage. Do you see what he's doing? He's putting willing and doing side by side. And he's saying, even though I have the desire to do it, I'm not doing it. He's putting thought, desire, will, intention next to action and follow through. And he's saying, I've got one, but not the other in Romans seven eighteen. So when Paul says, work out your salvation, he's saying, do your salvation. Don't just desire it. Do it. And it's plural. It's communal. When we read an imperative, we, we usually, uh, as Americans, sometimes we jump to individualistic, right? Like, uh, he told me to do something. I need to do it alone and I need to get it done. But this is communal. It's plural. It's a shared salvation. The context of 127 to 218, it's corporate in application. He's basically saying, do salvation together. Why would we fear and tremble, though? Okay, I mean, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit better here. I'm supposed to work out my salvation. I'm supposed to do 
together salvation. But fear and trembling, I'm still not feeling any better. What, what's going on? Why should I fear? This is a, a concept in Christianity that we need to reclaim. Fear and trembling is all through the scripture in our relation to God. And it's an encouraging and terrifying thing at the same time. Acts 9 says it like this. Walking in the fear of the Lord, in the fear of the Lord and comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. Fear of the Lord and comfort and the Holy Spirit go together. There's this, this concept of trauma or trembling. And Mark, when the, the disciples, they went to the tomb, they fled from the tomb from trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. There is this concept and, and a category of traumatizing, paralyzing fear towards God, which draws you toward him, not away from him. In the Old Testament context, it would be the physical, emotional, mental capacity being undone, overwhelmed in light of an overwhelming, beyond powerful presence. And, and sometimes it might be the context of an army. Sometimes it's an angel. Most of the times it's God himself. And it means to be taken beyond capacity. I am in fear and trembling. At the very least, it eliminates the concept of casual Christianity. That's an oxymoron. Casual Christian. Or cultural Christianity, right? Like, there's, there's no concept of that in Scripture. This fear and trembling, it's a picture of total surrender. Annihilation of the will. Reverential awe. Incapacitated self-rule. Debilitation of the faculties to run towards sin. And pure joy. That's what I see when I see fear and trembling. And the psalmist says it best in Psalm chapter 2, verse 11. He says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Do you have a category for that? Joy and fear and trembling all in one package. Let me try to paint a picture. It's kind of like when I take the kids to the fireworks every July 4th. And I can remember taking Elijah with me. Uh, we went over here to, they shot him off at the Duke Performing Arts Center. And we, or at least in the parking lot there. And we were at the corner of, I think it was Blunt and Lenore. Lenoir, however you pronounce that. I still haven't figured it out. I'm sure it's French. And we were standing there, it was right there at Shaw and the McDonald's, you know. with the, Yeah. And he started out on my shoulders. And poof, poof, the lights just lit up the sky. And it was loud and it traveled from my shoulders down to my arms, and then another wind went off and it traveled from my arms to saying, let's go home. This is too loud. This is crazy. And I can remember the following year, we lit them off in our driveway over on Bloodworth. And Anna was sitting there in my arms as I was sitting in the, in the uh, lawn chair. And, you know, we just had the little $20 fizzle things that just spark and everything. But there was this, this, this sheer terror with joy. She was in my arms. She had to be in my arms. She wanted to push back into my chest, but she couldn't take her eyes away. It was delighting, delightfully terrible. That is God. He's delightfully terrible. With fear and trembling, we rejoice. 
And so Paul says here, work out your salvation together. Do salvation together with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is the energizing, working one within us. He says, not work it out, but do it. Okay, do the salvation. Why? Because God is the energizer in you. He's like the battery, the fuel source. He's within you, Christian, both willing and working, causing you to desire and causing you to do. It's the same energizing power we see in the resurrection in Ephesians when it says that that God possesses immeasurably great power and he energized Christ when he rose to him from the dead. That same energizing force is within you when you have the spirit within you. This God energizes will in you, desire in you, and he energizes energy in you. I know it's redundant, but Paul's redundant. He's saying that very thing, I will... Create will and capability within you. And that's why, with fear and trembling, you should do faith together. I need to stop here for a minute. If if you're here this morning, and you don't see yourself as a sinner, and you don't see yourself in need of a Savior, we use a term called unbeliever to refer to that kind of state to be in. Like, I'm an unbeliever If I don't think I'm a sinner, I've done nothing wrong. And I don't need a savior. I don't need a perfect person to die for my sins. So if you're in that kind of category, you are so welcome here. We so want you here. But I just want to share something with you. This is gospel that we're talking about, that God does something instead of us. And see, you were created to perfectly love and to be perfectly loved. But like all of us, you've chosen a life against God instead of standing for God. You're standing for yourself. That's where we've all been. Every single one of us. But God, the energizing one, he is stirring your heart for his love. He's calling you to repentance. That means to confess your sin, to say, I can't measure up and I can't make it right. He sent his son to die the death that you deserve for your self-rule. God makes dead men come to life. Dead men and women. God washes with new birth. So give up your life. Give up your rule. Give up your resistance to him as your king. You can't wash yourself clean. You can't even, according to this, you can't even desire to love God apart from his energizing your will. We're all dead spiritual corpses awaiting for God's resurrecting power. And if you give up and surrender yourself to Jesus, cry out to him for pardon, he will instantaneously adopt you into his family. There's a common misconception in in this country, at least, that being a Christian means being obedient, following a bunch of rules and regulations, and that we some reason do that because we're fearful that if we don't, God might get us. But see, this is saying that Christianity is conversion, literally, to be converted from a dead one to a live one. The spirit is placed within that changes our hearts, that creates the will and the capability to obey God. That's Christianity. It means to be invaded by God's Holy Spirit. So we should fearfully do faith together because God is causing it. Now, I want to stop here and I feel the need to thank you as a church. Because I've just talked about doing our salvation together, fearfully doing faith together. 
And I think that's what we've done these last two and a half years. Treasuring Christ Church, thank you for doing salvation with me these past two and a half years. For helping me with my children by having the guts to speak up when you saw things that we could do differently with them. For helping me with my marriage by loving your wives well. For having the honesty and the courage to share with me when I was offensive. And forgiving me when I repented. For helping me fight sin in my life. Telling me when I was bowing to the fear of man. When I was arrogant and praying with me. Sharing, many of you sharing your sins with me. Sharing your struggles, your hopes, your dreams. I don't know if you're in here or not, but thank you Nathan Zimmerman. You've had the courage to be a true friend. Nathan has put our shared salvation into practice. Um... He's raised the bar in my heart for fearful awe of God. And uh, Brenton, I do see you in here somewhere. You, there you are. And, and Dan Bordson, you guys, you've joined that effort in our O2 group. O2 group is an amazing thing. If you're not one in one, you really ought to get into one. Thank you, Sean, Travis, Paul, Byron, and Hunter. Not just naming you because you are pastors, but I mean this, each and every one of you guys. You've modeled and preached what it means to have confidence with trembling because God is the willing and working one. He's causing the will and the work. Thank you, community group. I can't look at all of you for taking seriously what it means to love one another. Remember that terrifying lesson that we first had together. I still can't believe Elizabeth and I were given the joy of leading you guys. And there's at least... 30 to 40 names that I should mention, but I can't for, for I'm going to miss somebody or, or I'm going to run out of time and you guys are going to be running to the next service. But Elizabeth and I, we wear the fingerprints of treasuring Christ's church on our faith in God. So you're a part of the work in Chicago because we wouldn't be who we are if you had not fearfully practiced salvation with us these past two and a half years. We will make it through this. (laughs) Moving on. Verses 14 through 16, Paul says this. We should fearfully do faith together for the sake of illuminating a corrupt world. We should fearfully do faith together for the sake of illuminating a corrupt world. That's the second point. We see that in verses 14 and 16. Let's read that. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of the crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Paul's doing a really interesting thing here. There's a lot of Israelite context in verses 14 to 16. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. He's just returned to this concept of unity, togetherness. Don't grumble and backbite and and spout poison against each other. But in context, the Israelites were doing it towards their leaders in the wilderness. So he says, don't do that. Why? So that you will become blameless, innocent, and without blemish. 
Does that mean they're making themselves innocent? No, it's saying just like in a court of law, as you live out in front of unbelievers, this not back and forth backbiting, as you love one another, as you do life together as Christians in community, you will become blameless in their eyes as they observe you. You will become blameless and innocent without blemish. Where? In the midst of a crooked and perverse or crooked and twisted generation. But there's something going on there when he gives you those three layers of blamelessness. He is totally going back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32 basically says this. I, this is Moses. He's singing a song of warning to the Israelites before they enter into the promised land. And he says, I'm going to proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he... Now, the opposite. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. So I'm going to speed this up a little bit, and you don't have to keep the rest of that verse up there. That's basically Deuteronomy 32, 3 through 6. But what's going on is this. In the Israelite context, they were not reciprocating God's love. They were crooked and twisted. They were taking the straight, clear paths of God, which was to love him in return and making it crooked. And that metaphor throughout Scripture, Jesus would say, you're a crooked generation. John the Baptist would say that God is going to make all crooked things straight. Peter would cry out, escape this crooked and twisted generation. It's all through Scripture that God is going to straighten things out. But the concept here is you need to be in stark contrast to the crooked, mumbling, complaining, murmuring crowd so that you stand out as God's children in community together, doing your salvation together. What does it mean to shine? Because he says this is the result. This is the result in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So you're among them. You're not huddled all together away from them, but you're among them and you're shining as lights in the world. Picture a star shining in the east, pointing to people how to get to Jesus, right? The, the magi follow it. Or, or look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. It'll be on the screen. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That's your job description. That's my job description. That's who we are as Christ ones. That as we live life and do life together, and as we love Jesus brightly, we're in a dark, crooked sky, and we're unified stars pointing to the sure center of Jesus Christ. By holding fast the word of life. But what's the word of life? In, in 1 John, the word of life is Jesus himself. In John 5, the word of life is the words that he spoke. And it just erupted life. He says it, he says it like this, Jesus does. He says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has a life and life eternal. And then he says this, there will be a day when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. That's why we're naming our church Regeneration Church. It's life from the dead. This word of life. So does it mean holding fast the word of life or holding forth the word of life? It could be translated either way. 
I want to say that it's holding forth the word of life, but I have to be legitimate to the Bible. And I think in context, he's actually saying holding fast the word of life. So why are we having this conversation? Because I need to explain to you, many people have read this text and they focus on holding fast the word of life to the extent that you hide from all the unbelievers and you hold fast to the Bible so that we don't get knocked off of it and we don't want anyone to get in our way of making a sin. But the context is stars shining in the night holding fast to the word of life. The NIV translates it holding forth. I don't think that's bad. But in context, if you keep reading Philippians, Paul says, I don't want to see you let go of it. So I think it's holding fast, but it's clinging with all of your might because it's life giving to others. It's holding fast with a death grip. Do not stray from the word of life because the grand assumption is that you're surrounded by unbelievers. That you're just thick with unbelievers all around you. So in the midst of a crooked, distorting, dishonest, depraved faithlessness, believers appear as shining beacons of the glory of Jesus, clinging to the clear, straightened, non-distorted, non-twisted life. And this is why we're here on planet Earth, to reflect glory to those who are trapped in darkness. We should fearfully do faith together because God is causing it for the sake of illuminating a corrupt world. So let's talk application. You guys are sending us to Chicago because we're the light of Christ and we must light up the dark. We must. I'm going to get like called Jeremiah, I think. People have asked, why would you live there? The cold, the crime, the cost. The answer is simple. Where else are lights needed but the darkest places? So I want to humbly uh, share with you just a practical outworking of chasing the dark with the light of Christ. So if you could go ahead and play that video, that would be great. in Humble Park for over 37 years. I have lived here probably two and a half years. I've been in Chicago for 28 years. I'm a homemaker. I'm a bisexual lady. I manage this store for my brother. Welcome to La Magdalena Bookstore. The pride of the neighborhood. I was 17. Came from India. I did my high school year, college year, Chicago. I mean, this opportunity came in, so I started managing the store. And basically, if you just look around, I have almost everything you need. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, and then I moved to um, Humboldt Park. This 
place came up and it was big enough and in perfect condition. The price was excellent. My father came as an uh, immigrant from Puerto Rico um, to work in the fields. And then I came to Chicago when I was living. Myself and my two children living with me. And I have lived here for uh, almost 20 years in December. It's pretty good. It's becoming a better neighborhood. Humble Park is where you want to be. I would describe Humble Park as a gem in the rough. <laughs> but I've seen it the whole Texas, right in front of the stores, with the gun drawn and 20 people fighting. The last three years, I see a lot of difference. My neighborhood has ups and downs like any other neighborhood, but my neighborhood is in particular off of Humble Park. See, in my neighborhood, the ups are that people take care of their property, they do everything they can to help out the young people, but the bad things are there's a lot of gang activity. Where the banging is religion, except what I am and honor all decisions. I'm from Humble Park, where we're loving all the thugging. Police ask questions and we never say nothing. Things that could be done to improve my neighborhood are more police patrol and, like, for the school, there could be, like, more security to secure the kids and more teacher-student involvement because I, what I notice is there's a lot of kids that they're dropping out because the teachers aren't helping them out and well the teachers just start relating to them and you know show them there's more potential out there for them than just dropping out having kids and you know doing things in the streets instead of having a good job we have a very friendly, um, pretty close neighbors, but I also think there's a lot of really good people in this neighborhood and a lot of families that are really trying. There's change. There's a lot of Caucasians moving in and, you know, the Puerto Ricans and African Americans don't really like that because everybody's used to everybody. And now there's like a majority of Caucasians moving in into the condos that were once empty lots and well that's just kind of like it's kind of weird because usually think oh Humble Park is bad and now it's turning kind of Caucasian-ish but really it's not because there's not that many Caucasians there and it will always be Humble Park it will always be a Puerto Rican African American neighborhood that will never change my name is Azul. I'm Guan. I'm Irma. I'm Chicago. I'm Chicago. I'm Chicago. And this. And this is. And this is Humble Park. Obviously, that's not an official word. It's just the most important word from the people living there. Um, Humboldt Park, it's, it's either the ideal neighborhood to live in or it's besieged by an open drug market, depending on who you talk to, what you read, um, whether you're talking to real estate developers or you're talking to people concerned about their kids getting involved in a gang. Uh, some list Humboldt Park as the top 20 violent crime and top five narcotic crime communities in Chicago. 
Others view the community as prime real estate. You saw the sign, right? All those Caucasians moving in. But you know what? My joy lies in the fact that he said it will always be an African-American and Puerto Rican neighborhood. Amen. So some people view it as a prime real estate moving towards a bright future uh, due to the yuppies and artists moving in. And then others view that as a threat. So this, this weird mix. This is Chicago. The blue dot is Humboldt Park. And this is kind of the outline of the neighborhood that, that we're moving into. Uh, a sign in a storefront reads, Yuppies stay away from Humboldt Park. And a group of residents and businesses who fear the loss of historical Puerto Rican culture by the transformation of outside developers, they've rallied around a slogan that says, No se vende, not for sale. Because they're concerned about that. And the big Puerto Rican Day parade also is, is there, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, Humboldt Park, though, it has a story. The community has undergone multiple migrations of people groups, beginning with the blue-collar Norwegians and Germans in the 19th century, followed by the Lithuanians and the Jews and the Poles. And by the 60s through the 80s, it was dramatically changed from 99% white to 41% Hispanic and 36% black. And to this day, it's still the central location of Puerto Rican culture in the country. Now, by the 90s, young professionals and artists started to move in on the east side. East Humboldt Park, from nearby Westtown and Wicker Park. And according to one reporter, I need to read this, it says, you can find well-kept brick bungalows, two flats and cottages where children play in the street on some blocks, while multiple abandoned homes, boarded up buildings, and open calls for drug sales are seen and heard on other nearby blocks. It's, it's a mix. It's block by block. There's tensions between the gentrifiers who are moving in from the east and then the long-term residents who fear the loss of their culture. And uh, we want to see people coming together into one church. There's also marks of death in Humboldt Park. So this is, um, this is a violent stat of the city. Anything that's red is the most violent. Anything that's kind of purpley, how, how appropriate, is less violent. And... Humboldt Park is that right up there, number 23, that's brown, not quite red. Below that's Garfield Park, which is a real kind of um, violent area. And then down here is Inglewood, which is usually in the newspapers down here on the, the south side. So we'll be way up there. And uh, individuals, the marks of death that we're seeing here is individuals choosing isolation or retaliation against one another. Individuals being owned by the creation, by a drug culture. And the idolization of respect and honor and, and someone will kill someone if they don't get it, right? Like, you've got to respect me. Within a two-and-a-half-mile radius of Humboldt Park, there's only one Bible-believing church for every 2,000 people. I didn't say Baptist church. I said Bible-believing church. We don't want to go plant an improved church. We just want to plant a church where there isn't one. And if we wanted to get that number down to, say, one church for 500 people, which is a bit staggering, we'd have to plant at least 200 churches in just that one neighborhood, which is three and a half square miles. So what are we going to do? Well, Humboldt Park has become our three and a half square mile world. It's the space we want to intentionally inhabit and shine the light of Jesus. So... We're going to become students of the neighborhood. 
We're going to understand its unique heart struggles and barriers to the gospel. Because the greatest mistake I could possibly make is I I would come in and say, I'm going to write your story without actually living there and then revise their history with my ignorance. So we're we're going to move in. We're going to talk to neighbors. We're going to play at the parks. We're going to talk to the police, to the principals, the pastors, the neighborhood advocates. And we're going to partner with churches on the ground. And we're going to eat at the neighborhood restaurants, shop in the stores and pray like crazy. And we're just going to absorb what does it mean to be Humboldt Park and what is it exactly that is being embraced instead of the gospel. And then we'll develop Bible studies, counseling and discipleship out of our home. And by God's grace, we'll watch as God builds his church. We do not believe we will transform a gang culture. We do believe that we can befriend neighbors and give them hope. We basically want to see God's will be done on Grand Avenue, which is the avenue that splits the neighborhood right in two. We want to see residents forgiving one another, being delivered from evil. And we want to see one humanity of all the ethnicities and income levels in Humboldt Park that is very diverse, worshiping God for reconciling them to himself and to one another. So there's always a price tag. How much is that going to cost, Craig? Uh, Starting new churches requires time and effort. You guys know that. You've started this one. And finances. Particularly in the inner city where real estate's high and resident income is low. That's what Humboldt Park is a picture of. And we plan to cut costs significantly by forming multiple house churches that have elders attached to them. And they're not anti-establishment, but it's kind of like church planting in the east, in in Asia, where you have home churches that can divide and multiply, sorry, quickly. And so we will keep real estate low by not purchasing a $2 million building. And then I will will continue to work part-time indefinitely. My, my plan is to put 10 to 20 hours into a job indefinitely for the, my life. Um, but you see the chart. You guys get this all the time. Many of you are already supporting us. I just wanted to show you that we're, we're doing well because this collared piece is what everybody's pledged. And all we've got is this, this piece over here that turns into that kind of nice little tan piece. We need about 15 more people uh, to, to pledge their support. So you can go to the next slide. How can you keep in touch with us? Well, go to this website, regenrenew.wordpress.com. You can put in an email address, get on our mailing list. There's a table out there that you can put an email address down and say, hey, I want to get the updates. And um, you will hear from us at least monthly. So this is just one example of how to fearfully do faith together for the sake of illuminating a corrupt world. We're going... You're sending. We're doing faith together. But these aren't the only options. Think this morning as you're sitting and doing lunch together. Talk about this. How do we apply doing faith together in Raleigh or Durham or Fuquay or Nightdale? Find the spaces and the places where unbelievers are. Did you hear that? Find the places and the spaces where unbelievers are. Go be a light in the dark. Where, here's, here's one of the motivations that's getting us to Chicago. You can apply it here. Where are the least number of Christians hanging out? And go there. Not by yourself. Bring people with. And do life together there. Take your shared salvation there. Paul assumes that we're doing that. He doesn't tell us to do that. He assumes that we are. And he says, because you are... This is the result, that you're stars in the night. So here, uh, 
here's a, an example. A guy named Thistle wrote a song. And uh, this, is, this is a song. I think it's a good way to close the sermon down because it describes this exactly, this concept. He says, there's a dude on the corner that's out there smoking weed. He need to hear the truth because the truth will set him free. There's a baby in the building that don't got no food because her mama on the block trying to get it from them dudes. Ain't nothing wrong with you going overseas, but there's people on your same street need to be freed. If you want to do a mission, you ain't got to look far because some people who need to hear the truth in your backyard, on the bus stop, girls at the beauty shop, dudes at the barber shop, people at the car wash, the dudes sitting next to you at the coffee shop, we supposed to hit the hood until it looked like God's block. We're supposed to hit the hood until it looks like God's block. Until we die, we suburban missionaries. Until we underground and in the cemetery. It's time to go to war. Ain't no time to be scary. They need the living water that's flowing out of your belly. We must do faith together for the sake of mission. Let's pray. Father, we, we beg with you that you would, for the sake of your name, for the sake of your great name, draw men to yourself and women to yourself. Not because their greatest need is to be clean and sober. Not because their greatest need is to have money in their pockets. Not because their greatest need is to have certain things or stuff or a life that is all figured out. But God, their greatest need is to know you, be loved by you, and to love you in return, to cry out your name. So God, we pray that Raleigh and Durham and Nightdale, Chapel Hill to the furthest reaches, God, Chicago, the suburbs of Chicago, the, the, the other states around us, the, the countries, the world. God, that it would be filled with your worshipers because you are such a saving God. In Jesus' name, amen.